Chillax, a podcast where you listen to this about talk about life, news, and anything interesting. Welcome back, everyone, to a new episode of the Chillax podcast. I haven't really come up with a title for this episode yet, but I'm going to be talking about my experience working for the government in their problem gambling council. So, a quick, uh, I, su- I suppose, short summary of my poly life. I went to a drama and psychology course, and I joined because of psychology. And typically, the poly, you have to go for internship and you either go for performing arts or social sciences because you study drama and psychology, right? Then people join for different reasons, either drama or psychology. So drama goes to performing arts, doing pure drama or other artsy stuff. And if you are psychology, you most likely join government services or non-profit organizations. And I went to work for a government agency and the agency was under the Social and Family Development Ministry. Government is one of those places like F&B, you know, that you really need to experience once in your life. You really get to see how such places work. It's a really interesting experience because you get to see how these places work, right? It doesn't really conform to your standard corporate world kind of the way they operate. They are not driven much by economic factors. They are not trying to make profit, make a living in this case. And the way they work is kind of different, even though, I mean, people still, you know, have your standard style, your performance review and everything. But it's a completely kind of different situation here. And as a poly grad, the work I did was very limited. I mean, for those who came from poly, you most likely will have experienced it before. If you're lucky, you're going to be doing exciting stuff. But if you're unlucky, you're going to be doing a lot of like admin work, saikang, and you're like manning the hotline. So what I did is I manned the hotline. I processed a lot of files, physical files, do a lot of paperwork, admin work. So overall, the work done by the agency, right, was to manage the gambling situation in Singapore. When the casino was established, I think it was quite a while ago, man. So, you know, working there for about a year, which is quite long. I mean, usually internship is about three months, right? What I did was I worked there for about three months. And then what happened was I did quite well and I extended it all the way until I enlisted. So I enlisted very, very late. I don't know what happened. Maybe there was some issue. I enlisted one year later. Essentially, I get to work for one year, which is a bit like not not that great. I mean, as much as I have one year to gain, uh, accumulate a lot of savings, but it's not that great because a lot of my friends entered army around uh, June, May, and they kind of they kind of ORD earlier. And then me, I had to disrupt, I had to go back to army after I finished uni. Like, I really love cock cock already. I still need to go back to army and serve with all the young kids. Like, waste time, right? When people, is like, you know, finding job really, competition is tough. Then after I graduated from uni, I still had to go back and serve three to four months. Crazy, right? But it is what it is. Like, I mean, that's the situation. But going on a tangent, the interesting thing is that, you know, working there, you get to learn all these laws and rules and what we are doing to help safeguard our Singaporeans from uh, problem gambling. And one of the things that they have done, I'm not exactly sure how true it is. Okay, so it happens, but I can't be sure that whatever information I give is accurate and factual because I'm very hazy really and like my memory not that clear anymore. So it's based on my impression and based on what I've seen. Essentially what happens is that right, if you go to casino for more than like a set amount of times, I mean a lot of people might think that, hey, $100, I, uh, I don't want to waste money to go in. Usually you just go once in your life, right? But the truth is there are people who go in several times and you can, I think, buy like a season pass thing or I don't know, buy a pass, right? You pay about 2k back then 
and you get to go in unlimited amount of times. Any Singaporean that goes in, I suppose you will be kind of track. Government will kind of know where you go in and you go how many times. And when you're going too many times, right, you'll be flagged out by the government, by this council. And you will have to kind of show to them that you are financially stable. Otherwise, you will be kind of blocked from going to the casino. What happens is that you go several times and then you will get a letter from us. And then when you get a letter from us, you need to go to this website, go to the government website using your SingPass to upload your income tax, your salary information to show that you are not in debt and you are not wasting money away. Not really wasting money away, lah, but it's more of like you have the financial capabilities to withstand the losses and to, to be able to gamble responsibly. I'm not sure whether this has changed or not. I suppose it's still there. Usually laws don't change that regularly. And if you go too many times, most likely you'll get flagged. And some of you who have relatives who go to casino a lot would know about this situation. And usually people who get flagged are elderly gentlemen or females. Because I mean, you retire already, then you got a lot of time, you got money. You get your CPF money or whatever it is, you can just go casino and gamble. And it's quite a good deal from what I understand. There are a lot of people who pay for that 2k pass. And then you go in, you get free flow drinks, free flow food. And you just sit there, don't, don't really gamble. Just go there, enjoy, have fun, talk to people. Kind of like you're going to Void Deck or going Kopitiam to drink beer, right? And not do anything and read newspaper. Essentially, that's what those people do. So there were a lot of cases of elderly citizens who got blocked because they went in a lot but they weren't very savvy, they are not very educated where they know how to read English. They get this letter sent to them to ask them to submit their financial info but they don't really know what they are asking for and you have a lot of these people coming down asking what is going on, why are they getting banned. And besides that, family and employers can also kind of submit exclusions requests. From what I remember, there are cases where the family know the member is likely to gamble and they will make such requests to ban them from the casino, you know? I'm quite sure you know some of uh, your relatives, they are kind of an addict. I mean, most people addicted to Toto, but they don't go so far to spend a lot of money, right? Like spend thousand or twenty thousand dollars. I mean, some people just buy every week. Maybe one to two dollars or five dollars or ten dollars. That's not a lot. But then there are those that are very crazy that they spend a lot of money on, on Toto. So as a prevention measure, they were like, okay, I know that he has a tendency to buy a lot of Toto. Then maybe there's a chance that he might get addicted to gambling at the casino, which is a lot more expensive and they can lose a lot of money very easily. And what happens is that the family would submit some sort of request to exclude their family member from going to the casino. And then what happens is that you have drama, you have the person who is being excluded trying to fight back, trying to support that he is of sound mind or financial stability, he can go and gamble, he can do whatever shit he wants, you guys can't do anything to me. And then you have employers that submit such exclusion requests as well, usually it's your uh, foreign workers. So you have a lot of construction companies that submit all these thick stacks of paper requesting, you know, all these forms that request their Bangla workers to be excluded because usually what happens is that we have these Bangla workers, I mean, they are foreigners, right? So that means they can go casino for free. And I mean, if you can go casino for free, why not, right? And I don't think maybe Bangladeshi, Bangladesh have casino. I'm not too sure about that. But when they come here, I mean, what can you do, right? You can go hang out at Mustafa Center. You can go hang out at Orchard Road and you can, I don't know, go somewhere else, but Casino is one of those places where you get to visit, right? It's like a tourist place where you get to enjoy and sightsee. And usually that's what happened. And those who are not excluded, they they might, you know, spend 
they lose money then they get addicted there are cases where people um usually what happens is that they get excluded then after their work ends their contract ends then they fly back to bangladesh right then they have like a period of time where um, they have two to three weeks before they fly back then the case is that they will come down to remove this exclusion once they remove this exclusion they go to the casino they might lose all their money there's a chance they don't earn a lot right then when you start losing you want to make back money then you start racking up a lot of losses then this becomes a problem so that's usually what the employers would do so a part of my job is like interviewing these bangla workers to process their revocation you know and then they will come down to revoke their their exclusion right and then i have to sit down with them ask them a few questions to check whether you know they know what they are doing whether they are financially stable or not before we process the revocation and i also get to see the court hearings like what i mentioned just now the family exclusion thing right you have these families of gamblers where they have this court session where they have to argue about their points whether he should get excluded or not and then the gambler will try and like argue back and substantiate with his own i suppose reasoning and there's a panel of experts that will decide whether they want to enforce the ban or not i think this panel of experts usually are like grassroots leaders counselors with a lot of experience psychologies and all these experts that will help to determine whether they should uh, stick to the ban or remove it typically the patients are foreign workers that comes to remove their exclusion and then there are, there are old people that comes and these old people i think i'm not quite sure what's the actual percentage there are some nice people but i think the aggressive ones are the ones that really stand out and a lot of these older people that i remember are very aggressive very much like my father they have anger management problem and then when things don't go their way when they have to go through all this like administrative bureaucratic process they will start going crazy and they will start shouting there's a front desk that we ban and the front desk right it's not open front desk eh. there's a glass window like a glass panel that kind of blocks so if you were to punch the glass most likely it wouldn't break and there's a there's a security guard that stands there to make sure that you know we are safe even though there's a glass already so double safety insane right yeah people can get very aggressive when it comes to these kind of things and you have a lot of these aggressive uncles and then there's a very aggressive aunties like your typical karen type of auntie that very annoying and just keep on uh yum you keep on talking 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 like telling you you know going through all these problems trying to complain 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 and you can't really do much right it's a bureaucratic process they have to do whatever they have to do and you have to do whatever you have to do and this takes time besides this uh interacting with the patrons uh, my experience there was rather interesting i mean it's a mix of manning the front desk manning the hotline dealing with these people and then at the same time it's also back-end work doing all these administrative tasks and it was quite an interesting experience because it was my first corporate job internship kind of interesting to see interactions happening how this corporate hierarchy work how power is used and i worked till my ns enlistment i literally shaved my hair botak on my last day of work and enlisted the next day like what i mentioned what happened was i graduated already and i was interning and then i extended all the way until my ns ns enlistment and the next day was like i need to go to Tekong, right then the day before i go and cut my hair i shave what i think number one is that what you call i shave botak then i wear i wear corporate dressing your long pants your trousers and then your your shirt tucked in then i go there put up hair <laughs> and start working you know my last day and it was pretty funny because I, I got a lot of stares from people in the mrt and i guess it's kind of valid it makes sense right because you have this botak guy 
that is wearing formal clothes that doesn't really conform to your whole understanding of what this person is right you can see that they are trying very hard to pinpoint or identify who is this person which life stage is this person in and because the dressing is so weird this guy is bota so this person should be in army but then yet at the same time this bota guy is wearing formal and he's carrying an a4 paper box because what happened was that on my last day i mean i've been working there for one year right so i have a lot of barang barang that i need to bring back and I just took the A4 paper box with all the rims of paper, like empty box. And then I put all my stuff, then I carry my box. And then I wearing formal. So I look like I just got fired, right? Or I resigned really. But then I look bota at the same time. There's this confusion because he's not in army. Is he in army? And is he working? Can't tell. What kind of company or working place where you have people that is bota? And then at the same time wear formal. It's so strange right? because it breaks all the mental stereotypes that people have. And it's and it was very funny just seeing people staring at me. I was like, there, there was this very weird guy in the in the train that was really staring intently, glaring at me. Then I don't know what, what is going on. Did I do something wrong? But yeah, anyway, that was an interesting experience the last day. Back to talking about the working experience. The first thing that was very memorable for me was seeing the whole iron rice bowl term personified, like actually come to life, you know. I mean, you keep hearing from your colleagues, or not colleagues, your parents, your friends, whoever it is, any adult, they will say, government job is iron rice bowl. But what does it really mean, right? I mean, you know what it means, but then you never really see it happen. So it's hard to understand. It was interesting to see it for the first time because, I mean, we all know you probably will not get fired. Hearing these claims, you know, is one thing, but witnessing it is another. Seeing somebody that is underperforming, that is like literally not doing any work and not getting fired, it was like, dang. At that very moment, it was like, this is really the representation of Iron Rice Bowl, man. Because in my workplace, there's this lady, she's about my parents' age, but she's single. I mean, my parents' age is about late 50s, 60s, and has been transferred a couple of times between different departments. And she don't really do much work. I mean, she does some work, but not much work comparing people who are of similar status. She's about senior rank, uh, executive to senior rank. And you compare to those uh, entry uni grads, they are doing a lot more work than her. Those uni grads that join, doing a lot more work. And why is she not doing that much work, right? Like she's so experienced and she tries very hard to siam all the extra work. She comments a lot. She gives a lot of feedback and she complains a lot, but doesn't take any action. That aside, I mean, it just works, all right? If the person don't do as much work, it's fine, it's fine. But the worst is I sometimes, I will catch her falling asleep at work. And it's a common thing, you know, everybody also knows that she falls asleep. Like what the fuck, right? Everyone around her is like working and she falls asleep. Eh? And then sometimes she will snore because her workplace, right? The seat where she is at is quite centralized. And there are people, there are desks, there are cubicles that are around her. You know, when she snores, people can hear and people will just go over and tap her and tell her to wake up. But they don't really scold her because where she is seated at, all the bosses there are not her boss. So you don't really want to do these kind of things, right? And people kind of understand. And what can you do? What can you do? And I wonder how much she earn. Like good lives, yeah. Come to office, clear some admin work here and there. Performance review, maybe get a pass and nobody can fire her. I mean, it's quite a good deal, right? And I got asked around before, like what exactly must a person do to be fired? I remember like vaguely, you have to commit some great travesty, then you'll be fired. And even firing that person also requires strong reasons that must be greatly substantiated so you must commit the travesty you must commit a lot of these fucked up things and then the people who are trying to fire you need to provide a lot of solid reasons to back it up otherwise you are probably not going to get fired if you just kind of skirt that line 
dance along that thin line. It's not even a thin line, it's a big fat line that you can just stand there, walk around, run around, hover around, lie vertically, horizontally, and people still can't do anything to you. Yeah. So that's that. It was interesting to witness such things because this was the perfect example of, I suppose, iron rice bowl, right? I mean, it's not just this example. I mean, typically, iron rice bowl also refers to the fact that you are, you are kind of shielded from economic events where you are not going to get fired because your company is not making money, because you are not making money. You are the government. And that's the situation here. As for the work, like what I mentioned, I meant the hotline, the front desk, and also process a lot of paperwork. Mindless paperwork, I guess that can't be helped, right? Since I was a poly student, and also I was in the department that does operational work. The uni interns did more important stuff. So it wasn't very exciting compared to corporate work. That was what I remembered. I think the most exciting department was the policy department and the public communications department where you get to research, plan, implement big things. I mean, despite the mundane work, I was fortunate to do some comms work. I was there for one year and midway through, you know, uh, there was some review and I told them this kind of paperwork is all right, but I want to experience the communication stuff because I want to study marketing and comms and it seems very exciting. They do a lot of this work with agencies, commercials and I thought, oh, why not just try out a bit lah. I'm not sure whether any of y'all remember the World Cup commercial where, where we predicted that Germany won and the aftermath of it was fascinating. I wasn't part of it all the way through but I was part of it for a certain segment. It was a unique event and, and when it happened, there was so much scrambling to fix the problem. It was a first time event and they really had to take down the commercial, change the tagline. And the commercial, man, was very good actually. It really touches you emotionally. But unfortunately, it was so good to the point that it predicted the winner. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I guess it was bound to happen since if you want to film some interaction about football, gambling, people have to discuss who will win, right? I wish I was there, you know, from the inception to see how that decision was made. But since my core role was operations, I mean, unfortunately, my manager keep on reminding me that, hey, you are doing operations. You cannot keep on going away and do all this comm stuff. So the comms component, the task was a little bit, not that much. And I didn't manage to, and I didn't manage to participate in everything. She said, it would be interesting to see how this thing started and how this thing ended, right? Because I only get to see the ending part where the commercial, they already run really. Then they predicted Germany will win. And then they are just scrambling, creating the, I don't know, comms plan to salvage this situation and to kind of turn this into another perspective that says, ah, even though my father have won because Germany, you know, predicted correctly, right? They still continue to gamble. He earned all this money. This kind of motivated him to gamble more because he won by betting Germany, right? And that was interesting. I still remember after this happened, we were at a D&D event and the minister used this disaster as an example of how the government encourages people to take risk and they are okay with failure. I think at that time, the culture was generally risk averse in the government sector and you are penalized for making mistakes. The management recognized that and you know, you mix the whole startup tech culture. It was a burgeoning thing. You have this rapidly growing tech firm startups and news keep covering it. Billion dollar unicorns. There's this whole rapid growth that really make everyone think about the future, right? The government recognized it and they rolled out the whole 10 year, I'm not sure how many year, digitization plan, digitizing any kind of uh, government work. 
and push us to a digital future. And at that time, we all know, I mean, no matter what the management says, it'll be very difficult to change the whole mindset of risk averseness because, I mean, they are trying to adopt a very startup kind of way right to experiment innovate try new things but how do you even innovate in the government sector right overall what i took away from the experience was i crave for more exciting tasks operational was very boring i enjoyed comms a lot more because you see your efforts come to life there was more variety you are cast in the limelight too because you are doing public comms you are doing big things the thing is that was my thought after i finished my internship is it still the same now um i guess it's partly true but i realized i enjoy operations work too i found that i might not be the most talented person in real life corporate work i prefer studying and you know you know there are some friends that didn't do so well in uni and when they started work they really flourish. They seem to have a knack for social relationships. They know how to navigate the corporate structure, corporate relationships. They are strong mentally. They are able to thrive in the workplace. While me, I learned that I thrive in environments that are certain. There's a lot more certainty, stability. Things are a lot more routine. Work that is routine. I'm not that great in terms of navigating the corporate environment. I really hate people, talking to people, trying to convince people. I get discouraged very easily as well and I really hate getting scolded. My anxiety problem is also kind of stifling. I still want to do all these exciting comms or marketing work but I can't really handle the kind of anxiety and uncertainty that comes with it and having to deal with people to push things through, to push your objectives ahead. Maybe it will take time for me to get used to it because I'm still you know, young, two years into the working world. I still need to gain experience to be confident and maybe at the end of the day i might be able to do all these things confidently but at least this podcast and youtube channel i'm working on is an expression of this desire i'm able to do this because i don't have stress or anxiety i get to express all this creativity all this variety i mean there's a lot of interesting things to do right with this podcast and learning how to do all these things is very fun and i am also free to fail i am free to learn and to do whatever i want that's why it's nice to be able to have this thing here to do this thing while I do my routine work uh, at work. Then during my free time, I do all this creative stuff. And maybe I can gain experience and be confident, you know, gain confidence from doing this whole podcast side thing and content thing that can be brought back to actual working life. I'm not quite sure whether that will happen. At least now, this arrangement is nice. I guess the stakes at work is too high la, that it paralyzes me. That's essentially what, what is happening here. And that's the end of the podcast. I hope all of you guys have enjoyed this episode. This was quite an interesting sharing, thinking back to my times. That was like very, very long ago, man. Like five, six years. Not even five, six years. Even longer. Almost a decade back, really. Uh, I'm getting old, man. If you have been enjoying this podcast for quite some time, you might want to consider checking out uh, the Patreon page at PATR reoncom slash chillax podcast you can support this podcast you know for as cheap as a taping and then you get additional bonus episodes per month you know all this money goes towards building the video podcast creating the live stream setup and providing more freedom for me to explore different content and entertain you guys more yeah so that's all i will see you guys next week